The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let's open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, as we finish out the second chapter and the beginning of the story of the kingdom of heaven is here. Let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for the magnificence of your word, uh, for the power and wonder and glory of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for each and every one who is here this morning and listening to this message. You know each and every one of them. You know all about them. You know their challenges as well as their victories. You know their needs. Um, And as a good father, uh, your heart burns with compassion and love, and your desire is that through your spirit and by the Word of God, you would bring a word of nourishment, strength, uh, encouragement to their faith as we walk and abide in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, may we hear what the Spirit would say to us collectively as a body and as a church at Maranatha, but may we also hear on a deeper level Uh, what you are saying to us personally. And may we hear the word of the Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Okay, so let us begin with verses 12 and 13 of our story. Last week we talked about, if you weren't here, uh, the Magi are coming from the far east, uh, could have been ancient, uh, the area of uh, ancient Persia, Babylon in that area where the Jewish people had gone, and now they have a prophecy that they've held on to for centuries about a star being a sign of a scepter and of a king being born, the king of the Jews. They came and bowed down before him. So then in verse 12, because Herod had instructed the Magi, hey, when you find the baby, you know, come bring word to me. But in verse 12, it says, then being divinely warned in a dream. Now, this is a big theme for today's message, so if you don't mind underlining in your Bible, underline the word dream. We're going to talk about that. Being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. So here's the first uh, lesson, at least life lesson of application. What we're going to see happen with Jesus, the enemy is going to come after him. And as we talk about the king and the kingdom of heaven, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, That same king, Jesus, is now inside of you, and therefore there is a spirit that is against Jesus Christ, and wherever the king is, that spirit will come after you and I. But here's the good news. Every true child of God is under the Father's divine protection and care. Under the Father's divine protection and care. As we mentioned last week, Herod King Herod, who, by the way, his title was, I'm the king of the Jews. And then he hears this, you know, these magi with an entourage and and probably is this sizable group 
uh, protection. They have all these great gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so it kind of, you know, was a, a, an entrance into the city. These ambassadors, what are you here for? Hey, we, we saw the sign in the heavens, a prophecy. The king of the Jews has been born. And Herod's like, what? A rival? Uh, so he goes, yeah, well, let me know, you know, about, I, I'd like to go worship him. Tell me, you know, and so his plot was actually to murder this baby, this, what he considered to be a rival. So we talked last week about uh, Herod being infamous for his paranoia and his erratic behavior. He was a wicked man and who was now plotting uh, to bring murder to the son of God, which had just been born. But God gave the Magi a prophetic dream. And he warned them, do not go back to the city of Jerusalem. Do not report back to Herod. You've just come, you found the child. I've guided you to the child. You've bowed down and worshiped this king and given him gifts. You are now part of that prophetic uh, plan. So go home another way. And then right after that, Joseph has a dream, a prophetic dream as well. And that is Herod's coming after you. And behind Herod is that spirit wanting to put uh, Jesus to death. So Joseph, in the you know, middle of the night, he has this dream, but it's not his own thoughts. It is God communicating to him, there's a plot to come after your brand new baby, boy, Jesus. And so you have to go to Egypt and leave. I want you to note this in verse 14. Joseph wasted no time. Once he awakened in the middle of the night from that dream, he quickly packed a few of their belongings. Can you imagine you're a young couple, you you just have this baby, uh, and now you have this dream, and you you have to tell your wife, honey, I just had a dream, I think it's from God, we got to get out of here, pack a few things. So they hastily packed a few things, along with some frankincense, golden myrrh, and (laughs) fled in the middle of the night to Egypt before dawn. And I think we, follow, we can follow an example here. When God, and God will warn his true children, he will tell you of evil plots and plans that are coming against you. This is always true. He's a good father. He will protect you. Whoops, how did we get ahead there? Um, there we go. He is a good father and he will protect you. Uh, but when God warns, it is up to us to act. All right? So do you see what's happening in the world and around the world right now? Uh, God's children are being haunted and hunted and persecuted and attacked around the world. How many of you are aware of that? Everywhere we look, uh, they're being attacked. There is tremendous spiritual warfare going on in the world. And I want you to know that behind, you know, the armies and the terrorists and all of that, that's on the earthly physical realm. Behind them on another spiritual supernatural level are demonic spirits that are using human instruments that will align with their evil purposes as their proxy, just like they did with Herod. So that same spirit of antichrist is with us to this day. Now, what many people don't know, of course, we talk about the Antichrist and, and that he's coming in the, the last days or whatever, but the Bible actually tells us there is a spirit of Antichrist, and actually that spirit, 
that is against Christ has been around for the last 2,000 years. In your notes, look with me as I put in your uh, notes here, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. So let's read this scripture out loud together. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And it was manifest starting with Herod and starting with this, you know, attack against baby Jesus. So God sent the parents and Jesus to Egypt for safety. Now, this is interesting. We know their history and their past. Wait a minute. That's where they were used and abused, you know, back in the day. That's where we were delivered. That's where we had the exodus. But there's something else going on here, and God is directing the Savior of the world through a dream to his Father in the middle of the night, run, flee, and you will find safety and protection in Egypt. Sometimes when God warns us and he reveals things to us on the surface, they don't seem to make sense, but always trust what the Holy Spirit says to you. Amen? Listen to what he says because there, there are many layers to what may be going on, and that's one of the first ones that I think here. And I also want to say this, pay attention to your dreams. Um, you know, this is something that is in the New Testament. Uh, you know, we think of, oh, that must have been the olden days. In the Old Testament, God gave dreams to people, but now, you know, it's just about the gospel or whatever. I want you to know where we are. We're in the New Testament, or more uh, accurately, the New Covenant. Uh, this, this is the kingdom of heaven has come, and God still communicates through dreams to this very day. Now, not all dreams. Uh, look, and I, so you have to test the dream and, and see, Lord, is this a dream from that wild pizza that I had last night? Or is it a real dream? And I think that you can tell. And sometimes, frankly, you may have a dream that you, you will sense in the spirit. It has some significance to it. And you should talk to your family and or friends or brothers and sisters and say, I had this weird dream. I think it is significant. I don't completely know or understand. And go with some other mature believers and, or pray about it or, Lord, what are you trying to say? But I will say this, because again, we are living in one of the most prophetic hours of human history. And right now, I am telling you, all around the world, God is, by His Holy Spirit, communicating to His children and to His people through dreams and through visions. This is not just ancient history. This is happening right here, right now. So be aware of it. And when God, you know, stirs your heart or He begins to awaken something in you, you know, pray, seek wisdom. Uh, be accountable. Learn what God may be wanting you uh, to, to direct you to do. So he is trying to keep us and protect us from the enemy. Okay, well, let's continue on in the story in verses 14 and 15. So when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. So this is interesting. You know, uh, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah, and, and this little Herod guy wants to kill his son. He goes, God, God, he, why doesn't he just smite Herod right where he is, right? Sometimes that's the way we think. We cannot go with our human logic 
<laughs> and let me just say it as simply as I can. God doesn't need our help or our advice, <laughs> though we give it to him a lot. Look, you're big, you're powerful. Why don't you do this? End the problem. Take care of it out. And God says, I'm not doing that. That's not my purpose. That's not my plan. I know he's evil. I know he's wicked. I know he's trying to murder my son. I'm protecting you. I'm guiding you. I'm giving you a dream. Trust me. Okay? So I think that's very important to note. Uh, And they were there in Egypt until the death of Herod. Listen, uh, the wheels of justice may grind slowly, but they eventually do grind. And even a wicked king in God's perfect timing, and by the way, God's always, always, always on time. We don't realize it until we're further down the road and you look back and go, now I understand why he did it this way at that time. Perfect. Well, hindsight is twenty-twenty. When we look forward, our vision is not always so clear. So they were there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled. Now, here's what's also important. There was a fulfillment of a prophecy taking place underneath this scene, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, and here he quotes an Old Testament prophet named Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So Matthew is taking a prophecy from Hosea and saying, so this was a prophecy that God would call his son out of Egypt. How can you call a son out of Egypt unless he goes to Egypt in the first place? (laughs) So he was sent. And and so there's a plan that once it all unfolds and develops, you look from the 30,000-foot view and you go, ah, that all is coming clear and it all begins to make sense. Now, on one level, we can say this. Uh, Here, I'm going to go to the next life lesson. Uh, On one level, we can say, okay, obviously the reason that God sent Joseph and Mary and and baby Jesus to Egypt is to get away from Herod and to be protected and all of that. But there is something else also going on. There is a reason why did God allow this drama? Every detail of the story, of God's story, has significance. There's a reason why, a deeper reason why God had Jesus go down to Egypt. And here's what I want you to realize, because wherever Jesus goes, the heart of the Father and the kingdom of God is revealed. Here it is. One, or we could say another, one of God's purposes for sending his son to Egypt was his love for the Egyptian people. A great movement of Christianity happened after the book of Acts, after they left Jerusalem, and they started spreading the gospel around the ancient Roman Empire, and believers went to Egypt, and a strong, vibrant Christian church was planted 2,000 years ago. And by the way, there is a vibrant Christian community to this day in Egypt. So part of the story and the reason that God sent Jesus down to Egypt was his love for the Egyptian people as well as his love for all of Africa. Because what began in Egypt did not stay in Egypt, but he kept moving to every single country until finally the gospel went all throughout the entire African continent, all the way down to the uh, uh, Cape Hope, down at the southern tip of southern Africa. And I love this because it absolutely reveals the love of God and, and the heart of God for Africa. Now, I want to show you a series of pictures. Where, where did Jesus go in, in Egypt? The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly where he went. Uh, but in doing some recent study and research, 
a very good educated guest has come. So I want to show you a couple of pictures. And I want to submit to you that it's possible, and some scholars say maybe even probable, that Jesus and his young family went to Alexandria, the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Of course, uh, this would be a very natural place uh, for this young Jewish family to flee. Number one, it was nearby. It was also a well-ordered Roman province. In other words, it was safe. It was also very large for ancient times. It supposedly had over a million people. And if you got somebody plotting to kill you, even if you get out of Herod's jurisdiction, you kind of want to get into a big, as big a melting pot as you possibly can. Now, interestingly, um, can you imagine Joseph and Mary going from, you know, as it were, little Israel at that time to this big metropolis, by the way, which was originally uh, fashioned by none other than Alexander the Great. They also had this lighthouse which at that time was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was also a place where there was a synagogue. I don't know uh, if you knew this, but there was a significant uh, size Jewish community actually living in Alexandria, Egypt, at the time Joseph and Mary were young parents. So the idea was, why would they go there? Because that's where there's a large Jewish community. In fact, they had a synagogue that thousands of people could stand and worship in. You had Jewish connections where young Joseph could get a job to provide for his family. So while we don't know for sure, this is very possible. And God, if you, I don't know if you heard this, but um, Africa, the size of this continent, God loves Africa. And the size of the continent of Africa geographically, is five times as big as the United States of America. It is enormous and huge and has some of the greatest treasures of nature, uh, you know, and the animal kingdom and all of the plants and flora and fauna and all of that. It's just a storehouse, a tremendously rich area, and all these precious people and tribes from Egypt down to South Africa that God loves. And by the way, briefly, we showed you a little picture of this family uh, that you can actually meet after this service in room C210, which is that two-story building upstairs, I think, in the corner, who are actually ministering in Africa among the believers and what God is doing right now today. It's a wonderful and amazing thing. So I want you to think about this. Let's take the whole history of Israel to show you God's love for a continent Uh, and not just a country. God sent Abraham to Africa. He went to Egypt. God sent Joseph down to Egypt. God sent Moses to Egypt. And finally, Jesus went to Egypt and Africa for God's love for them. So these are the stories behind the scenes, God's love for them. By the way, if you have a pen or a pencil, you can write down this scripture, Isaiah chapter 19 is a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled in the future. It was written 2,700 years ago. If you want a prophecy about the country of Egypt and what's going to happen in the end of days, a glorious prophecy where God says, these are Egypt, my people. It's powerful, beautiful. But then we think of not only this story of Jesus going down to Egypt, but I think about the Magi who traveled from the Far East. Well, why, you know, why would these magi have a prophecy from ancient uh, prophetic realms about a Messiah that's born the king of the Jews? Because God sent his Jewish people east. I want to show you another picture. 
Okay, this is modern-day Iraq. Guess what's in Iraq? Babylon. Every time in the Bible you read the word Babylon, we're talking about modern Iraq. Wow, that, that rings true for Americans with our recent history with that country. But biblically, it goes all the way back. God said, I'm sending all of my people into captivity to Babylon for 70 years. Now, on the one hand, he's disciplining his own children. But on the other hand, he's planting men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who bring prophecies with them concerning the Messiah and the love of God for the people of modern Iraq. There is a, in fact, several years ago, I got to actually go to Iraq. I don't know if you were here or remember. I went with uh, my friend Joel Rosenberg, and we went to northern Iraq, and I got to do a, a pastor's conference for pastors in Iraq, one of whom was a guy that had been a terrorist who had a radical dream at where Jesus revealed himself to him. He came a believer, started shouting, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and started a church in his own home and goes around everywhere sharing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God in modern Iraq. How's that? And then in the Bible, Iran is every time you see the word Persia. Well, guess what? First, God sent them to Babylon and the Babylonian kingdom with Nebuchadnezzar, but guess what? Babylon got conquered. Who did they get conquered by? Persia, which is modern Iran. So Daniel may have gone also to Persia. God brings his Jewish people to Iran. Why? Because God loves Iran too. And he brought the good news of Jesus Christ to Iran. And if you have not heard this, let me tell you that right now, this very moment, there are multitudes of Iranians ancient name Persians who are having dreams and visions and God supernaturally revealing to them that Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the Savior of the whole world. So I love that, you know, God, he, he knows what he's doing and he has a plan and he even uses refugees running for their lives to bring the good news to far distant lands and places. So we need to be remembering that. Okay, let's go to our next life lesson, verses 16 through 18. It says in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived, remember he told the wise men, Oh, tell me where the, the new little king of the Jews is born. I want to worship him. No, he didn't. He wanted to murder him. So when Herod saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. That's not good when a wicked man gets angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I mean, this, this talks about how, how deep and how intense this spiritual battle is. Herod goes, okay, I can't find the you know, baby born king of the Jews and kill him. So now I'm going to murder all the baby boys. So he, he has to know, okay, who do I have to get rid of? Well, the Magi said the star had appeared about two years previously so Herod figures to make sure he gets the one, he goes, I want all, he sends soldiers to the little village of Bethlehem 
And he says, I want you to find every home with a young couple that has a baby boy, two years and under, and you kill him. What's interesting is, you know, as, as we look at this whole story, uh, uh, in fact, I'm going to give you the life lesson now because this is where this is all going to end. The Lord turns what was the place of death into a place of life. The, the story of Bethlehem begins with death, but as it turns out, it's the place chosen by God for the birth of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible is connected to the death of Rachel, Jacob's precious wife, Rachel. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 20. You remember that uh, she was the great love of his life, and she could not conceive. She could not bear children, and she begged, and she prayed, and finally, God heard her cry and, and answered her prayer, and she had a child, and, he, and, and she was able to deliver him, but tragically, it seems like there, it was a troublous birth, and obviously, after the baby boy was born, um, Rachel died in a place called Ramah, which is right in the outskirts of the little village of Bethlehem. And while, you know, just before she dies, she realizes that she is dying and she's not going to be able to raise this little boy or be his mom as he grows up. And many times Jewish people name their children according to the circumstances of the birth. That's generally what they do in that part of the world in the Middle East. So she names her baby boy Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. Can you imagine in your own language, naming your baby boy that you prayed for and waited for and finally God gave you and you name your son, the son of my sorrow. And then she died. Well, Jacob, he had to stand there. Now he's lost his wife and he has this little boy that, that was part of the cause of her death and his wife has named the little boy the son of my sorrow. So Jacob says, no. He rejects that. He resists that. And he says, I will not let the baby boy born from the wife of my youth and of my passion of my heart remain with the name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. He changed his name to Benjamin. And Benjamin in Hebrew is, he is the son of my right hand. Now, you think about Jacob was a pretty important character. He's one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Well, it's Jacob who had the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Benjamin is going to be one of those 12 sons who becomes his own tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, no way am I having a tribe called the son of my sorrow. His name shall be the son of my right hand. Now, what's interesting about this whole story is both of these names, son of my sorrow and son of my right hand, both of them relate to Jesus Christ. Because we read in the scriptures about Jesus that he was, quote, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. That's one of the things Jesus was known for. Imagine, when he ultimately was lifted up on the cross, not only the sins of the world were laid upon him because he vicariously was dying in all of humanity's place, including you and me, 
Not only of the sins of the world were laid upon him, but imagine this, all of the sorrow and brokenness and pain and anguish and grief of all humanity for all time was laid upon him as he was on the cross. He bore all of our sorrows so that in him through the resurrection you and I can have our tears wiped away and we can live forever in the joy of the Lord. Amen? But not only is Jesus known as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he is also now the son of God's right hand. In Acts chapter 5 verse 31, after Jesus had resurrected and the apostles start running around telling the story, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. What is, where is he gone? He ascended. He ascended to the Father in heaven. And where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Benjamin was just a little foreshadowing of the ultimate son that God the Father said, though he was acquainted with grief and sorrow and bore the sins of humanity, when I resurrect him, he's going to sit at my right hand for all time and for all of eternity. Amen? So this story is very powerful. Now, Jeremiah's prophecy was given some 600 years before Christ was even born. And it grew out of, so you have three layers to the story. There's Rachel who mourned over little Benjamin, but then later God disciplined his own children. He said, you idol worshipers, go to Babylon. And he sends them off. Now there would be hundreds of thousands of children who would be mourned by their moms who were ripped from their arms and taken captivity to a far off country. So what happened to Rachel with one happened again in the future. That's why there's layers to prophecy. And the whole nation, all of the moms grieved their children going to Babylon. But that second layer, again, was not the final one. The third layer was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because now, uh, and, and here's what's fascinating. Jacob, after his wife Rachel died at Ramah on the outskirts of the village of Bethlehem, to grieve her, he put a monument there near Bethlehem, which means that when Herod sent his soldiers to find and kill and murder the little baby boys, two years of age and under, their horses uh, literally rode past the monument to Rachel on their way in and on their way out. So, uh, but Jesus, uh, God spared him, God delivered him, God sent him uh, down to Egypt, and then he would ultimately bring him back. What's interesting is Jacob saw Bethlehem as a place of death, but the birth of Jesus made Bethlehem a place of life, and that's what God does for our lives. The Lord turns what was the place of death into the place of life, uh, and God is good at that. Amen? So let's just read a scripture because uh, Jeremiah prophesied and made a promise to the nation that they would be restored to their land in the, in the end days. And this is not to go backwards in time to what it was in the past. This is actually looking forward to what will ultimately be the kingdom of heaven over and around the whole earth. But read with me Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. Let's read it out loud. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. 
So God is bringing them back. But it's something bigger than geography and land. Again, that would just be going back to what Israel once had in the past. There's something much bigger, much greater, much grander. The kingdom of heaven is coming, which means that not only is God bringing the Jewish people back to the land, but not to remain as it is to this day, but there is coming a divine revelation where the scales of their eyes also, what God is doing in Egypt, what God is doing in Iraq, what God is doing in Iran, God is also doing with Israel and will do to a greater degree when finally the scales are taken from their eyes and they see that Yeshua of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah. So read with me Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 and 28. Let's read this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. So all of that language of plucking up, breaking down, throwing down, destroying, and afflicting, that's what God did in his discipline in Babylon. But it also is what happened in 70 AD after the Messiah was crucified and resurrected, and God allowed the Roman army to come in and to destroy the temple. Uh, So what God said, I have done to afflict and discipline, so also I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. And that ultimate day will not be fulfilled until Jesus is known and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what's interesting, very few people today think of Bethlehem. When you hear the word Bethlehem, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Place where Jesus was born. Well, in ancient times, if you heard Bethlehem, you would think of the death. But now we think of life. And because Jesus not only died, but he rose for us, we all have a glorious, bright future where we will be together in a glorious city of the Lord Jesus in the new Jerusalem where there is no more pain, no more death, and we will never cry again. He wipes away the tears from our eyes and get ready for this and get prepared for it. Once we're in the kingdom of heaven, you will never shed one more tear for the rest of eternity. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. All right, let's go to the final life lesson that comes out of the last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 19 through 23. It says in verse 19, now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. There it is again. Now, I'm emphasizing this because I'm having dreams, and I'm having dreams that are from the Lord, and that I'm just praying over them and saying, wow, God. You just spoke to me just a few mornings ago. I had a dream from the Lord. It, it's awesome. And we're living in the days of dreams. When Herod was uh, dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, uh, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, well, you know how wicked Herod was. Well, his son was wicked as well. So he was afraid to go there. 
and being warned by God in a dream. Notice, he was afraid to go, then a dream confirmed you are not to go. What I'm saying is you may, if you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will trigger you with intuition, insights. You'll have that feeling of warning and God will confirm it through his word. He may confirm it through a dream, but he will confirm it. And that's what happened here. Joseph was afraid to go and then God said, yeah, don't go. And he told him in a dream. He turned aside into the region of Galilee. So, that, so uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are toward the southern part of Israel. Now where God in a dream says, go to the opposite side of the country, way up into the north around the area of Galilee. So that's why Jesus will be raised around Galilee, far away from Archelaus, the son of Herod. In verse 23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So this is my final life lesson. Believers around the world are known as lovers and followers of Jesus the Nazarene. This is very, very powerful, very prophetic, and very profound. If you're a believer in Jesus, you follow the man from Nazareth. In essence, we are all followers of the Nazarene, all right? Now, here's what's interesting. Matthew then goes on to say, now this fulfilled what the prophets said, he shall be called a Nazarene. There's a little problem with that. As you read through the entire Old Covenant, Genesis to Malachi, there's not one prophecy or one prophet that says those words, he, speaking of the Messiah, shall be called a Nazarene. Because of that, there are many critics who immediately jump on and they write books and they write papers and they pat themselves on the back for being so smart. See, this is all a myth, it's nonsense, and there's no such prophecy. And unfortunately, what they actually reveal is their ignorance of the way the Bible was actually written and what it means and how it should be interpreted. This book was lived in, in a Middle Eastern world to begin with, right? And it was written uh, originally in the Hebrew language, which, which is a Middle Eastern way of thinking. If I can say that one of our problems of what many of the books of the modern critics of the Bible and Jesus and the gospel and so forth, they think with a Western mindset, with a Roman, if more deeply Greek mindset. They think like linear, okay? If I, and I'm gonna give you a simple you know, Bible school 101. If I, if I was, had a chalkboard behind me, I said, okay, I wanna show all of you what Greek thinking is. I take a piece of chalk and I draw a big straight line on it. And I, you know, say, where do you want me to put a check? Put a check right here. Okay, put a check on it. Okay, that's us, you and me. The past, who knows where the past is. The future, who knows what it may be. We live right here in this little X, in this linear moment. All that matters is now. It's even in our advertising that you don't, you don't worry about the past. The past is the past. Future, who knows what will happen. Gra Listen to this, the beer commercials captured Greek thinking. Grab for all the gusto you can now. Nike, just do it now. You're here now, live for now. What do you feel now? What do you wanna be happy now? That's it, okay. So I'm gonna erase that. Took the line away in the little check. Now I'm gonna give you Middle Eastern philosophy 101. What do I do? Take my piece of chalk and I draw a big giant circle. Now, where do you wanna put a check? Doesn't matter, okay, put a check right here. That's the way to think with a Middle Eastern thought. It's a circle and you're here. 
All of a sudden, in the world where things are circular or cyclical or with patterns or with layers, since everything goes in a circle or a cycle, the past becomes huge, extremely important to that you better know your family tree, who's mom, who's dad, where did they come from, and where does my family originate from? Because the past is going to come around to happen again in the future. The past can almost be prophetic because life goes in a cycle. And that's why God created the world and, you know, the patterns and winter, spring and summer and fall and over and over. So there are many, many layers. Having said that, the key to interpreting what Matthew is saying is, he said, thus was fulfilled the saying of the prophets. He didn't say that just a single prophet But what Matthew is doing is what Middle Eastern people would do. They take a bunch of prophecies and they collate them and put them all together. And when you put them all together, you will only be able to come up with this conclusion that the Messiah is a Nazarene. Now, why is that? Because, and as I put here in your notes, Nazareth is based upon the root word in Hebrew, netzer. That's where the name Nazarene, Nazareth comes from. As a noun, netzer means branch or sprout. Now listen, Isaiah uses this very word to describe the Messiah King, a branch that will grow from the stump of David's dynasty. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, I'm not going to have you read it because I put the Hebrew word in there, but listen to this. This is what Isaiah said about the Messiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch, Hebrew word netzer, from his roots will bear fruit. Let me put that in modern English for you. You could read Isaiah 11:1 1 this way. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a Nazarene from his roots will bear fruit. When you put in the word Nazarene, what you're saying in Hebrew is, and a branch. Here's another scripture, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. There are two Hebrew words, Semek and Netzer, that both mean branch, and they're interchangeable. And if you've ever read through the book of Jeremiah, and you probably remember there are prophecies about this branch, and, and all, you know, the commentators agree, this branch guy is the Messiah. And even in English, the word branch in your Bibles is in all capital letters, capital B-R-A-N-C-H. So Nazareth was apparently a community that was started by people who were waiting for the promised branch from the family of David. So they named their town Netzer, Nazareth, Nazarene, in the hopes that the branch would come. And as it turns out, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in the very village known as the branch. Now, let me just show you a couple of pictures. This is a a picture of what Nazareth looks like. It's up in the north, right near the Sea of Galilee, and it's basically a city on a hill. Does that sound familiar? It's a village, not a huge village, but it's a village that's perched right on the top of a beautiful mountain. We have friends there, Boutras Mansur and and Najid and all these guys, they've got the Nazareth Baptist School. They're doing a tremendous work of, you know, uh, they've got a school and great outreach and a great witness for Jesus, a great Christian community in Nazareth to this day. Okay, so I want you to imagine Jesus up here, you know, in his little house with mom and dad, and he spends 30 years growing up in Nazareth 
branch town. Now, this was his view from the top of that hill. This is what he saw. Now, this is the modern picture of it, but this is what's called in the Bible, the Jezreel Valley. Does that look beautiful? Some of you that have been with Israel to me, you know, they have turned this into this agricultural garden of Eden. And, and Jesus would have seen this as his view every day of his life for 30 years. What is also interesting is in this valley of Jezreel is an ancient little town called Megiddo. Does that ring any bells? Revelation chapter 16. Megiddo is the place in the Jezreel Valley where the last final battle called the Battle of Armageddon happens when Jesus Christ comes down and the breath comes out of his mouth and knocks down the Antichrist and all of his armies and the glory of the kingdom of heaven comes at the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus grew up looking over the very valley where that's going to take place his entire life before he began his ministry. How awesome and amazing is that? Now, I want to close with uh, this. Some of you will recognize what this is. Some of you go, well, what is that? A smiley face with a guy that only has one eye. But actually, that is a spray painted by the enemies of Christians. That is the symbol of your brothers and sisters throughout the Middle East. This is the actual letter in Arabic. Uh, it is pronounced noon. Everybody say noon. So it's the letter N. Now I want to read to you a little article from the National Review. This was put out in 2014. As jihadists expel Christians from Mosul, the international community is beginning to respond. There is a mass exodus of Christians from the Iraqi city of Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq. The Muslim fanatics who have taken over the city, calling themselves the Islamic State, issued an ultimatum to the city's Christians earlier this month, saying that if they did not leave by Saturday, July 19th, they must convert to Islam, pay a fine, or face death by the sword. As of Tuesday, most of the city's estimated 3,000 Christians had fled. Furthermore, the Islamic State, formerly known as ISIS, had marked the homes and businesses owned by Christians with that sign. Um, red with red paint, pronounced noon, the 14th letter of the Arabic alphabet and the equivalent to the Roman letter N. Why did they put an N on every Christian home and every Christian business? Because the N stands for Nasara or Nazarenes or Christians. And that's why there may be some of you you know, on Facebook or whatever, and you have your friend, and all of a sudden they got that funny, kind of weird-looking that, and you didn't never know what that is. That's an N in Arabic, standing for Christians who are being persecuted because they are lovers and followers of the man from Nazareth. And I leave you with this. When Jesus, think about this. Is there anything more important than the moment when Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world, to break the power of sin and death and Satan. He broke all of it and the curses. And above him was written a sign in three different languages. What did it say? How important could that be? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So we are proud 
of Nazareth. And we are proud to have that end of following the Nazarene because he's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He rules. He reigns. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. So the only thing we can do now is please bow your heads and join me as we pray. I know that you and I all have problems, but for just a moment, I want to suggest that compared to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and beyond the Middle East and many other countries around the world, our problems, in many ways, our first world problems, they've got a whole different set of problems, and we need to pray for them. Father, in the name of Jesus, uh, we come before you this morning, and we want to remember our family and our brothers and our sisters the lovers and followers and believers of the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. We love him. We worship him. And we, we pray, Father, have mercy upon the, 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 you know, men and women who have lost a, a mom, a dad, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister who were martyred. God, have mercy upon them. We want to pray for those that are having dreams and, and having to wake up just like Joseph and Mary and flee for their lives in the middle of the night. And Lord, we want to have compassion upon especially our own family of Christians who are refugees and running, scattering all around the world. May we welcome them and receive them and love them. But at the same time, we want to pray for those other refugees uh, who maybe they don't know Jesus yet. But because they too are awakened, or they too have to flee, or they too have to run for their lives, and they are in these various refugee camps where, again, we have believers, brothers and sisters, who are reaching out to them with food and clothing and with a warm embrace and a prayer and love and compassion and a listening ear and giving them good news and helping to explain for some of them why they're having dreams and visions of this Jesus of Nazareth in the night. And they are becoming our family and our brothers and sisters. So Lord, we pray that we would have a tender heart, that we would have a compassionate heart, and we would be prayer warriors, intercessors. Uh, have mercy upon them. Bless them. Watch over them. Protect them. May we be engaged and involved with them. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.